we are in the second letter of Peter, the second epistle of Peter, uh, the first chapter, verses uh, 5 through 11 will be our uh, study today. Uh, let me warn you up front, I have no idea how long this is going to be. It might, uh, it's going to, we could very well run out of time for discussion, uh, in which case, you know, make sure you take a look at, at least take a look at the questions, and my apologies to the discussion group leaders up front if that happens, but uh, there's just a lot in these verses, and uh, even if I do go over, we will not have begun to scratch the surface of what's available in, in this passage. But let's go ahead and read uh, even more of them. Yeah? See, they're just college students coming out of the woodwork. Uh, let's go ahead and read verses 5 through 11 of the second epistle of Peter, first chapter. Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence... In your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come to your word, to look into your word, to study it, uh, to see what you have for us and how we can apply it to our lives, how we can be encouraged by it. Pray your blessing upon our time together. Open my heart and my mind, open the hearts of each one here to exactly what you would have for us individually to learn. And we pray above all that you would be glorified through the reading and teaching of your word this, this hour. Pray your blessing upon it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, last week, Thomas, uh, I believe, took you through the first four verses, I'm hoping he did, the first four verses of Second Peter chapter 1. Um, and really today our passage is merely a continuation, kind of an expansion on those verses, uh, which express Peter's desire for his readers to live holy, obedient lives, becoming partakers of the divine nature. Uh, the very first phrase in our passage, verse 5, states exactly that. Now for this very reason, which obviously goes back, the very reason is to become partakers of, participants in the divine nature, because, verse 4, we have escaped the corruption that is in the world. Clearly, Peter here is talking to true believers, genuine Christians. We fairly well established that fact in our study through 1 Peter. Only true believers would faithfully and unashamedly endure the suffering for which Peter commends his readers. 1 Peter 4.16, if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. 
verse 19 of the same chapter, therefore those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Because God is eternally faithful, we can trust our souls to him, even in the midst of suffering. And we know from 2 Peter, 1, or 2 Peter 3 and verse 1 that his audience here in 2 Peter is the same as in his first epistle, uh, true believers, genuine Christians there in the churches of Asia Minor. So, since Peter's readers are partakers in the divine nature, he's now expanding on the implications that come along with that blessed privilege. Because we have everything we need in Christ, let's look, at, look back at verse 3 there, his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Verse 4, for by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. So, for this reason, because of all that is, in, of all that is yours in Christ, God the Holy Spirit, through the instrument of Peter, is going to give us some commands, things that we are to do. And we see here the mystery and the glory of spiritual life. We are given everything in Christ, and yet it takes everything we have to follow up on that. Because we have all we need in Christ, all the gracious resources for spiritual sufficiency, we are called upon to give maximum effort. But to be able to do that, we must have assurance of our salvation. Now remember, the theme of 2 Peter is a warning against false teachers. And false teachers' most vulnerable, vulnerable victims are those who doubt their salvation. False teachers have a way of making these people miserable, doubtful, weak, fainting in their worship, their prayer, their study, making them joyless, powerless in service, and confused about what they believe. But to those who are confident in their salvation, confident in the riches Christ has given to them, secure and assured in the true knowledge of the Savior, these false teachers have nothing to offer. So for this reason, because of all we have in Christ, let's keep on adding to it in order that we might enjoy its benefit, namely, assurance. Verse 5 then calls for a diligent effort. Now for this very reason, applying all diligence. Now, there are some who might think after verses 3 and 4, you have everything pertaining to life and godliness. God has poured his divine power into you. You have all of this. So the next statement might be, let go and let God, right? That we can relax, just lay back and let God take, every, take care of everything. This is not an option. Absolutely not. Instead, he tells us to use what we've been given to put it to work. Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith supply. And then there's a list of seven qualities that we're going to look at. This is the effort that we're directed to accomplish. Because of God's saving work in us, and because of its complete sufficiency, it brings to mind Philippians 12, 2, 12 and 13, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God put it in you for you to work it out. 
applying all diligence in your faith. Now, the word applying here in verse 5 means just that, making maximum effort. It's the idea of bringing in every effort alongside of what God has done. God has done all of this. You bring alongside every effort. That's the word applying. All diligence carries the meaning of eagerness, haste. It's used as someone who's in a hurry. It uh, signifies zeal. So in addition to and alongside what God has done, be zealous, eager, hasty, intentional in your own efforts. And then the word supply, which means to give lavishly, generously. Uh, thought that the root of this uh, Greek word epikoregio, uh, found this to be interesting. It means choir master. Uh, the, uh, in Greek plays back uh, at this time in, in history, uh, the choir master, in addition to leading the music, also had the responsibility to supply whatever was needed for that choir. Costumes, masks, music, training, whatever. And, and some of the Greek choruses of these plays, these theatrical productions, had dozens of performers. So the choir master had to have the financial resources to provide everything the choir might need. And some of these productions were extravagant beyond imagination. Um, so they had to have significant resources, as I said. So the word came to mean a supplier. The choir master was synonymous with a supplier. And it carries the connotation of a willing and lavish generosity in the supply. This is the word that the Spirit of God through Peter directs us, directs us to supply, to add in our faith. Now faith in this verse is assumed. It's the basis the foundation of everything God has granted to us, back in verse 3, everything pertaining to life and godliness. So in your faith, your initial belief and trust in Christ, you need to eagerly and zealously come alongside what Christ has done and do everything you can possibly do. That's what he's saying. There's assurance in faith. And the one who truly believes in the Lord Jesus Christ has every reason to be assured. Romans 15, 13. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. There can be joy and peace merely in believing. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 We should always give thanks to God for you, brethren beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. The Thessalonians, like us, could know that they were saved and, and could be filled with hope because of their faith in the truth. Faith, with it carries, faith carries with it assurance. 1 John 5, 13, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. So having faith can and does impart assurance but genuine saving faith will only yield the full fruit of assurance when you, make the effort to, when, the, when you make the effort to be obedient to what this text says here. You may enjoy that assurance initially and occasionally, but if you don't make the zealous effort to generously supply what is required alongside what Christ has done, then you risk missing out on the enduring joy, the full joy of assurance. So Peter, under the inspiration of the Spirit, 
commands us to diligently pursue the full supply of all these things. So now we're going to examine the qualities we're to be pursuing. There are seven of them, as we said, listed here, verses five through seven. Supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and your knowledge, self-control, in your, in your self-control, perseverance, in your perseverance, godliness, in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. Seven qualities or virtues to be pursued. And these virtues each are, in a sense, an expansion of the previous one. They, faith produces moral excellence, which produces knowledge, and so on. The first quality is moral excellence. In Greek, it's arete, arete translated elsewhere as virtue or goodness. It's the quality of someone's life that makes them stand out as excellent. It's seldom used in scripture, but it's commonly used in secular Greek, classical Greek. It's a noble, heroic term, usually used to refer to the proper and excellent fulfillment of a duty or expectation. So that's moral excellence. Second quality on our list is knowledge, discernment, spiritual insight, the word knowledge means correct insight, understanding, truth properly comprehended, properly understood, and properly applied. So we want to pursue moral excellence with the understanding that in our moral excellence, there must be spiritual knowledge, discernment. In order to live truth, we must know truth. We must understand how we are, how we are to conduct ourselves before we can conduct ourselves in that way. Moral excellence is dependent on knowledge of a high character and of a high quality. Having your mind illuminated or enlightened about truth. This, of course, involves a diligent study and pursuit of the truth of God's word. Now, inherent in your knowledge is another virtue that we find in verse 6. In your knowledge, self-control. Now, all bound up with a true knowledge and true discernment is self-control. The word in the Greek, enkrateia, literally means holding oneself in. In Peter's day, it was commonly used in the athletic realm. Athletes were self-controlled, self-restrained, self-disciplined. They beat their body into submission, uh, as according to 1 Corinthians 9.27. They abstain from unhealthy food and wine, sexual indulgence, to set themselves apart to disciplined exercise for the sake of athletic achievement, controlling the flesh, the passions, the bodily desires, rather than allowing yourself to be controlled by them. So he says, pursue moral excellence, realizing that at the heart of moral excellence is spiritual discernment, knowledge, and at the heart of spiritual discernment is self-control. So what good is discernment if we have no control? How can we be morally excellent if we can't control what we know or do? Just as an aside, these false teachers typically claimed that their true and secret knowledge had freed them from the need for self-control. They preached license to indulge. They were greedy. They followed their own lusts. They restrained nothing. Now Peter will address that later in chapters 2 and 3 of his epistle. But even here, he refutes that idea, saying that any theology that disconnects faith from conduct is heresy. 
So we have faith. In that faith, we supply moral excellence, virtue. In that virtue, spiritual discernment, knowledge. And in that knowledge, self-control. So all of these are essential to Christian living. Controlling our fleshly desires, consistent with what we know about truth, for the sake of producing moral excellence. Virtue, guided by knowledge, controls desire and makes it the servant, not the master of our life. That is self-control, one of the greatest of all Christian virtues. Moving on in verse 6, and in your self-control, perseverance. In the Greek, this is hupomon, endurance, or patience in doing what is right, never giving in to temptation, trial, difficulty, never surrendering to sin. We pursue moral excellence based on spiritual discernment, which produces self-control, which produces endurance under temptation without giving up. This word, hupomon, is often used in Scripture about how we should respond to trial, to troubles that come against a person, against your will, those things that make life so difficult, pain, shock, and grief. Um, in the Apocrypha, it's used to... Uh, describe the Maccabees uh, who, who said, that said they had a, a spiritual staying power enabling men to die for their faith in God as they did in the Maccabean Revolution in the intertestamental period. It's that spiritual staying power, that perseverance that will die before it surrenders. And at the heart of this persevering endurance is our fifth virtuous quality, and in your perseverance, godliness. Like arete, moral excellence or virtue, this word was also used back in verse 3. In the Greek, it's eusebia. It really means reverence, a practical awareness of God in every area of life. It can also be translated true religion or true worship. It relates to a real, true, vital, spiritual relationship with God. It describes someone who worships reveres, and adores God. Excuse me. Paul says in 1 Timothy 4.8, Godliness is profitable in all things. The believer is to worship God, to love God, to adore God, living a life of reverence for God and devotion to His holy will. We should follow David's example in Psalm 16 and set the Lord always before us. This should be our commitment. False teachers are irreverent, irreligious, ungodly. True Christians pursue practical and positive awareness of God in every detail of their lives. They are characterized by deep reverence for God, which leads to courageous, steadfast, joyful self-control in the face of trial, built on spiritual discernment in the pursuit of moral excellence. The sixth virtue is found in verse 7. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. Uh, this word is Philadelphia in the Greek. Brotherly affection, friendship, uh, imp implying mutual sacrifice for, what, for one another. So at the heart of godliness, the heart of reverencing God is loving each other, caring for each other. If you are a true worshiper, if you are genuinely supplying Eusebia, that godliness, godly reverence, you will show affection toward others which inevitably, inevitably leads to the seventh and final virtue in Peter's list. And in your brotherly kindness, love. 
agape, self-sacrificing, selfless love, the love of God. This is the love of the will, the love of choice, a, a positive decision to love, not the love of emotion. This is the highest virtue, the greatest good of Christian living. This is what Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, in verse 13, called the greatest thing, the greatest of these, is love, agape. At the heart of our individual worship toward God is that coexisting kindness toward our brother. And at the heart of that kindness toward our brother is the love of God shed abroad in our hearts. There is the pursuit. We pursue moral excellence. Moral excellence means being like Christ, diligently, zealously applying ourselves to the lavish degree to supply alongside what Christ has done for us to supply the maximum effort in the pursuit of these things. First thing we pursue is moral excellence, virtue, spiritual heroism, which means we're really pursuing love, the highest, purest, and noblest love, which will then be reflected in kindness and affection for other Christians, rising out of a deep reverence for our beloved God, leading to a courageous, steadfast, joyful self-control under temptation, built on spiritual discernment and the consuming, compelling pursuit to be like Christ, which brings us right back where we started. Faith is the foundation for it all, and love is the culmination. Moving on to verse 8, Peter says, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. What he's saying is, if these things are in your life and increasing, you're going to be useful for God. And you're not going to forget whether you've been saved or not. You're going to enjoy the assurance of your salvation. God wants us to enjoy assurance. He doesn't want us to be miserable and doubtful, but to be joyful, confident. God wants us to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we are saved and that we can live according to that sure and certain hope. And the way to experience that is to expend the effort to pursue the virtues described in verses 5 through 7. Where these things are realities in your life, there is the confidence, the assurance of salvation. And when the false teachers come along, they have nothing to offer you, nothing to tempt you with, because, and they're not going to be a problem to you if you experience these things, in increasing measure because you have diligently applied yourself to supply them in your life. So in order to enjoy assurance, we must consider the options presented verses, in verses 8 and 9. We have two options here. We can go either way, accepting or rejecting the pursuit of these virtues and the effort that is prescribed. Peter makes the result of these two options very clear. First is a positive option in verse 8. If we're going to experience assurance in our lives, we'll take that option. If these qualities are yours and are increasing, that's the first option, that you are pursuing these virtues. If you want to enjoy assurance in all its richness, here's the means, by pursuing these qualities. If you do that and you find them increasing in your lives, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That first phrase, if these qualities are yours, of course, refers to the seven virtues we've already discussed. 
if they belong to you, by the way, the Greek verb there denotes property which someone really owns, an abiding possession. It's not a temporary uh, acquisition. It's a very strong expression there. If you really have these virtues and they're on the increase, the Greek there is pleonas, which means to have more than enough, more than necessary, almost to have too much. They're increasing beyond uh, anyone, beyond reasonable expectation. So if you see these virtues in your life, these moral excellence, knowledge, and so on, you see these in your life, you see them on the increase, they're increasing, uh, back to verse 8, they render you, that is, they make you neither useless nor unfruitful. Just a, a word about these two terms. Useless literally means out of work, inactive, idle. Used eight times in the New Testament, always means indolent, unserviceable, inoperative, inactive, lazy. Um, like uh, Titus 1.12, it's translated lazy gluttons. Um, in James 2 and verse 20, it's translated dead. Uh, if you pursue these virtues, you won't be inoperative or useless. You won't be dead in terms of your in effectiveness. And then he adds, nor unfruitful. Of course, that means basically the same thing, unproductive. Uh, that word unproductive is used seven times in the New Testament. It usually refers to plants or trees. But it's also used of unregenerate apostates in Jude 12 who are like trees without fruit. Also used in uh, Ephesians 5.11 of the unfruitful works of darkness. Matthew 13.22, unfruitful, superficial believers. But it's also used in 2 Thessalonians 3.14 of the true believer who is unfruitful. So he's saying when your life does not manifest these things, these virtues, you are useless and unfruitful in the true knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But if they are in you and they're on the increase, you're not useless. You're not unfruitful. Your life is increasingly fruitful. If they aren't there, you're going to look more like an apostate or a superficial believer. Now, that it looks the phrase at the end of verse 8. He says, uh, in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That phrase shows us that he is referring here to true Christians. He's saying, you possess the true knowledge as opposed to a false knowledge. You are a real believer. Now, a real believer has the capacity to produce these virtues. They are inherent within the new nature because God says to the believer, through Christ you are blessed with all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies, according to Ephesians 1.3. And as we've already seen in 2 Peter 1.3, that you have all things that pertain to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him. So exactly the same thing there, true knowledge. So the seed, the potential for all these virtues is there in every true believer. So Peter is saying a true and genuine believing Christian who sees these things on the increase in his life is not useless, is not unproductive, but enjoys fruit and service for God in his life. Now that's option number one, pursuing these virtues pursuing them with all diligence, and seeing in your life the increase of these things and the consequent usefulness and fruitfulness. So that's option number one. Now, verse 9 gives us option number two. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. 
He who lacks these qualities, these same seven virtues, if he looks at his life and he doesn't see moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love, doesn't see it increasing in his life, if he's not pursuing those things, it says he is blind and short-sighted. He can't see far enough to discern his own spiritual condition. If a person pursues these virtues, he will be useful and fruitful. And if he is useful and fruitful, he'll be able to identify his spiritual condition because he can see the fruit of God's work in his life. He will know his spiritual condition. So if you want to enjoy assurance, you take option number one, verse eight. But back to verse nine, the one who lacks these virtues, these qualities, is blind, being short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Greek, in Greek, the word purification is katharismos, from which we get catharsis, which means a cleansing. He's forgotten that he's been cleansed. He's forgotten that he was saved from his former sins, his old sinful life. What Peter here is saying is that a person who has been saved who has gone through a salvation event in which he was purified from his old sinful life, but he has forgotten it, neglected it, because he is not seeing the, the increase of these virtues in his life. Where you have the increase of moral virtue, you have the evidence of salvation. Where you have the absence of the increase of moral virtue, you have the lack of assurance of salvation. One's assurance of, of salvation is directly related to what's going on in one's life. Those people who do not see these virtues increasing in their life may not remember that they have been cleansed, purified. So summing it up, the failure to diligently pursue spiritual virtues produces a sort of spiritual amnesia. The failure to pursue moral excellence in one's life, to pursue these seven virtues, will cloud your remembrance of your own spiritual condition. There'll be no memory of salvation at some point, and this individual will doubt his own salvation. He won't know whether he's really saved. He might remember some external activity that he might have gone through when he was saved, but he will not have the confidence of his salvation. So those are two options. A believer who has these qualities and virtues increasing will enjoy assurance because he'll see the fruit and the usefulness in his own life. He'll see that he has the true knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. On the other hand, a believer who is not actively pursuing these virtues and does not see these qualities increasing will lack assurance. Finally, in verses 10 and 11, we see Peter explaining the benefits that accrue with the active pursuit of these virtues. Verse 10, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you, for as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. Obviously, because of what he has said, you should be compelled to make your calling certain and avoid the heartbreak described in verse 9. Now, verse 10 uses essentially the same words as verse 5. Here it says, be all the more diligent, whereas verse 5 says, applying all diligence. Again, there's a sense of urgency and eagerness to make certain for yourself. There are few things worse than having doubts about your salvation. That kind of uncertainty can lead to grief, fear, and despair. 
So Peter says, be spiritually diligent to make sure for yourself about his calling and choosing you. Calling and choosing, again, are synonyms. The calling here is not merely an invitation, but is a sovereign command. This is the efficacious calling. And this goes along with that sovereign election in eternity past. Make sure for yourselves that God has called you and chosen you to salvation. Obviously, you're not trying to convince God because he already knows. He has no doubt about it. God knows because he chose you. But you need to make sure for yourselves. He knows his elect whom he has chosen, whom he has called. But can we have that assurance, that, same, that confidence? Absolutely we can. Verse 10 tells us how. For as long as you practice these things, in other words, as long as you pursue these moral virtues, as long as you diligently seek these increasing virtues, pursue a holy life, spiritual growth, you will demonstrate both to yourself and to others that you were called, you were chosen, you were elect. This is the confidence and assurance of our salvation. Now just a note about the word practice here, as long as you practice these things, this is the pattern of daily conduct. As long as the pattern of your daily life is to pursue these virtuous qualities, as long as that is your daily pursuit, he says, you will never stumble. You'll never stagger, stumble, fall into doubt, despair, or fear about your spiritual condition. You'll have confidence and assurance because your calling and election will be sure in your own mind as you're pursuing these virtues, as you see them on the increase, because you know that God is producing them in your life. Because you can see it, it's visible, it's evident, you know your spiritual condition, you've been, that you've been chosen, elect before the foundation of the world. And in that confident knowledge, you enjoy the fullness of assurance. What a rich, thrilling blessing that is to have that assurance, that confidence. So what Peter is saying is that assurance is directly tied to how you live your life. In verse 11, he verifies it. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior will be abundantly supplied to you. In this way, of course, refers directly to the diligently, diligent pursuit of these virtues and the blessing of assurance that they bring, leading to the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, which will be abundantly supplied to you. Now, to me, there are, are two possible ways to look at this verse. First, as Christians, we are guaranteed entrance to heaven at our physical death, 2 Corinthians 5.8. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be present, to be at home with the Lord, present with the Lord. We have already, as Christians, even in this life, we have passed from death unto life, from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son. But having assurance of that outcome brings abundant peace, contentment, and joy into the believer's life. From another perspective, uh, there's abundant reward applied, implied here for the genuine believer who diligently and faithfully pursues these virtues that are listed. He's saying, in the future, when you enter into the eternal kingdom, you will receive an abundant reward. John MacArthur calls this the simplest and most direct understanding of this statement. Now, all of God's children, when they go to heaven, will receive an abundant supply of reward. But what Peter is saying here is 
there is a more generous reward for those who have more diligently pursued virtue. See, I told you my mouth is not working right. And now, while John 15 tells us that all true Christians bear some fruit, it is apparent from verses 8 and 9 of our passage that there are two options that Christians can choose, either to make a minor effort at spiritual virtue or to make a major effort at it. So, since he has lavished upon all believers such enormous generosity, rich grace and blessing, since all believers will have some faithfulness and some fruitfulness, they will all experience some blessing and abundance and glory. While that is true, this verse, in this context, seems to me to be saying, as you diligently supply the virtues of Christian character in your life, God will reciprocate by continuing to increase the abundance of the supply which you will receive when you enter into His eternal kingdom. I believe there are degrees of reward which God will give to His beloved children based on their faithful, diligent pursuit of righteousness. Abundant sowing should mean abundant reaping. Rewards of grace in eternity will correspond to the work of grace in time. And there will be degrees of reward and glory proportionate to faithfulness in this life. So summing it up, there, for those who pursue virtue in this life diligently, they receive two things. Here and now, the assurance of salvation, then and there, abundant blessing. Now, let me be clear. I'm not talking about working to obtain our salvation or even to keep our salvation. That's the work of God alone. He saves us. He keeps us. Uh, this is entirely about working, applying all diligence, because we are saved in order to glorify Him. We want to please and glorify God by our obedience to Him. So any, re any rewards we may receive in glory because of our faithfulness in the life aren't ours anyway, because it is only through the power of the Holy Spirit indwelling us that we can accomplish anything pleasing in God's sight. This from B.B. Uh, Warfield, quote, Peter exhorts us to make our calling and election sure, precisely by diligence in good works. He does not mean that by good works we may secure from God a degree of election. He means that by expanding the germ or the seed of spiritual life, which we have received from God into its full effervescence or vitality, by working out our salvation, of course, not without Christ, but in Christ, we can make ourselves sure that we have really received the election to which we make claim. Good works become thus the mark and test of election. And when taken in the comprehensive sense in which Peter is here thinking of them, they're the only marks and tests of election. We can never know that we are elected of God to eternal life except by manifesting in our lives the fruits of election, faith and virtue, knowledge and temperance, patience and godliness, love of the brethren. It is idle to seek assurance of election outside holiness of life. Precisely what God chose his people to before the foundation of the world was that they should be holy. Holiness, because it is the necessary product is therefore the sure sign of election, B.B. Warfield, end quote. Now, in closing, I'd just like to list uh, just a few of the benefits of assurance. Uh, credit again to Pastor MacArthur for this list. 
Number one, the doctrine of assurance and the experience of assurance is important because it makes us love and praise God for saving grace for eternal promise. If we know we're saved, we're going to be loving and praising God for that. Secondly, assurance brings joy into all our earthly duties and trials. If I know I'm saved, no matter what happens in this life, I can have joy. Because no matter what comes temp temporally, I know I'm saved. And so I know what my eternal destiny is. So assurance allows me to rejoice in any difficulty, even back pain. Thirdly, assurance makes us zealous in obedience and service. If I know I'm truly saved, truly headed for heaven, then I know my responsibility is to obey my king. Doubt breeds apathy. Assurance breeds industry. Doubting discourages service. Assurance encourages it. If I know I'm saved, that I belong to God, I know my eternal destiny, that moves me to obedience and service. Those who are not sure of that are apathetic, indifferent, and as Peter says, useless and unfruitful. Fourthly, assurance gives us victory in temptation, because in the midst of the strongest temptation, I know I belong to God. Therefore, I know that there's no temptation taken me, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow me to be tempted above what I am able, but has with the temptation made a way of escape. If I know I belong to God, then I know he has given me the power to overcome the temptation. Fifthly, assurance brings contentment. If I have assurance of salvation, I am confident that I have riches in the world to come. And I have confidence that my God will supply all my needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. So if I'm assured of my salvation, it matters little what happens to me in this world. Six, assurance pacifies a troubled conscience. Even when I feel guilty or unworthy, when I feel the weight of my sin, my conscience is comforted in the assurance of my eternal salvation. Finally, if I have assurance, it removes the fear of death. If I know I'm a Christian, then I can face death in full confidence that I'll go from this life into the world to come where Jesus Christ himself will greet me. But those who are not sure of their salvation fear death. Those who have assurance do not fear death. So those are just a few applications of the doctrine of assurance. It makes me love, praise, praise, love and praise God, brings joy into my earthly duty and duties and trials, makes me zealous in obedience and service. It gives me victory and temptation. Gives, us, gives me contentment, though I have little in this world, pacifies a troubled conscience, and it removes the fear of death. Assurance is a gift of God for his own, own children who diligently and energetically pursue a holy life. Fanny Crosby said it very well. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what we have seen, what we've studied this morning in your word. We thank you for the assurance of the salvation that only you can provide, for the assurance that we get when we are obedient, when we pursue the, uh, the virtues, the qualities that you desire to see in our lives, 
that, uh, that moral excellence, obedience, perseverance, self-control, the knowledge of you, brotherly affection, the love that only you can provide. Lord, help us to remember that you are the, the source and the end of all these virtues, that we do these things for your glory and uh, for your praise, for your blessing on the service to follow, that you'll be glorified again, that we may understand better what it means to worship, to love you, to serve one another, and to have that assurance of our salvation. We give you the praise for it in Jesus' name. Amen.